to welcome Tafi Haddad in his book tonight. My name is Salim Tamari. I'm the editor of uh, the Jerusalem Quarterly, which you can buy here. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome an old friend and comrade, uh, Tafi Haddad, who has been for almost 20 years living here, off and on. Uh, he used to edit a journal that uh, the younger part of the audience may not remember. Uh, it's called Between the Lines, which was a militant, uh, critical journal that came out on a weekly basis. Monthly. Monthly basis, and then became a book afterwards. Taufi, to my great surprise, grew up in Kuwait for reasons that are still obscure to me, but you might want to explain it later. Uh, he got his PhD from SOAS uh, in developing economy and received later a postdoc from the Arab Council of Social Science Research uh, with work that is still continuing on the political economy of siege in Gaza. And uh, for that, I think we are going to see another book after Between the Lions and uh, our book being discussed tonight, Palestine Limited. Uh, what is exciting about this book is that it attempts to explain uh, socioeconomic development in the occupied territories in a manner which sheds light on many forms of uh, many terms which uh, are used as curse words or as uh, buzzwords without explaining what they are. Neoliberalism, chaotism, uh, economic development, de-development, and so on. And the title refers to two particular features of uh, development in Palestine after Oslo. One, limited in the geographic sense, meaning the segmentation of the territory uh, uh, from historical Palestine to create an uh, archipelago of uh, uh, units that are segmented from each other but controlled by both the world economy and by Israeli occupation. And limited in the sense of de-development of the economy, uh, in which he examines the mechanisms of control, not only by the Israelis, but by the world system, by the World Bank, by the ideology which he uh, calls neoliberalism, which is a word used often, but in this book it's explained in a manner which I found very enlightening. Uh, one of the most interesting part of the book, uh, which uh, I hope uh, Tafi will address is the whole analysis of the ideology of Fayadism and what it means, right and fall of Fayadism, as a particular feature of uh, development strategies that are peculiar to Palestine but uh, are also explains a great deal about uh, what was happening in the last 15 years. Uh, what I will do is introduce uh, to speak for maybe half an hour, 40 minutes, yeah. uh, I'll let you know when the time comes. And then we are lucky to have Dawood uh, Tarhani, uh, our friend and colleague, who will make uh, comments. Correct? Oh, okay, <laughs> and then we'll open it for open discussion. So, 
without further ado, please thank you for that. Everyone can hear me, yeah? Okay. It's wonderful to see so many people here, and uh, I guess uh, <laughs> having a book that comes out about neoliberals and having a, a, a hall filled with so many people speaks to the, the deep interest that, uh, and the sensitivity that this issue has in the Palestinian context. So I'm, I'm very happy that uh, that's the case. Uh, I should start first by uh, giving some thank yous to the people who helped organize this event, as well as who helped me along the way in, in terms of producing the book. I mean, in many respects, this book is the product of, of 20 years of work of my own that started, and that was part of discussions like these in, in Palestine for, throughout the course of 20 years, when I worked as a journalist or as an editor or as a, as a researcher. But this specific event, I have to thank Salim and the Institute for Palestine Studies, as well as Zainab Abkhat. I also have to thank the uh, Educational Bookshop, who uh, were actually early promoters of the book. And they told me today that they've sold over 180 copies of the book so far. It's actually one of the best, it is the best place to buy the book in Palestine because they were able to purchase so many at an early date, which allowed them to get the price down. If you look online, it's very expensive. This is academic publishing, which is kind of a rip-off, but it's the truth, what can you say? And uh, of course, Sekakini Center and Hadith and the staff here who were very helpful in offering uh, the, the, the center for, for, for having this event. Finally, one other point has uh, technical detail. Unfortunately, fortunately, unfortunately, uh, I'm, I'm speaking in English, as, as you know. I could do this in Arabic, although the, the truth of the matter would be I'm, I'm faster in, in English, and all my academic work is in English. So for the purposes of this discussion right now, we'll have it in English, but hopefully one day in the future we'll have one in Arabic, because I would very much like this book to be part of a discussion that is communicating and dialoguing with, with Palestinians, and Arabs and people who uh, were obviously the main stakeholders in, in, in what is taking place. So, uh, uh, go ahead. Uh, it, it, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of motivations behind this book uh, and where it came from. Uh, but uh, I think, uh, as Ali mentioned, how neoliberalism has been sort of thrown around as a concept that is not particularly understood. It, it became a catchphrase for many people, a kind of a word, a buzzword that people say is the problem with everything. Just to, uh, two days ago, or even yesterday, this is a, a clip from Ma'an Press, uh, which used to be a very good, uh, or still is to some extent, a, a journalistic agency, uh, speaking about $43 million that the World Bank is giving, is giving to Palestine. If you read the, the article, it, it speaks very clearly about the different types of projects that are trying to get the economy rolling again, helping with the municipalities, helping with electricity. This has sort of become run-of-the-mill in Palestine. Uh, and uh, uh, there, to, to the extent that there hasn't been, we have not been able to develop a serious critical debate and discussion about the World Bank, about neoliberalism, about donors, and, uh, and how the question of Palestinian liberation fits in, in with these issues. And uh, so uh, this is partly why, why I wanted to, to write this book, to try and address some of those questions and do so in a way that followed and traced the ideas of neoliberalism 
for, for the past 20 years and what donor aid has done in Palestine. Of course, the donor aid and the entire peace process has been a catastrophic failure, and we have to acknowledge this. Uh, it, it, it's led to the collapse, uh, the imposition of extended military, occupation, apartheid, 10,000 people killed since, since the year 2000. But somehow we have not gotten uh, around to academically grapple or understand or politically grapple with what, what has happened here. Uh, and uh, articles like this, I think, show, show that failure. The, the failure of the fact, if you actually read the article, it, it's basically very uncritical. It's a cut and paste job, which uh, basically says what the World Bank is doing. And, and we take it at face value, that economic growth here in Palestine is is a, is a necessary and desirable thing that would lead to peace, for instance. I'm going to try and break down these concepts, and uh, the fact of the matter is the book is, a, is big and it's a complicated uh, book. It's a very nuanced book, and uh, so uh, it, there's um, difficulties in trying to give you the, the summation of the book when, when it has so much nuance, but I'll, I'll try my best here. Now, uh, people may not realize that the occupied Palestinian territories were actually one of the, the areas where the World Bank and international finance organizations were incredibly active. In, in fact, according to their own acknowledgement, the World Bank, the OPT theater was considered more central than in any other major post-conflict situation before or since. In fact, the policies, the social and economic policies that were derived out of the OPT theater were, uh, were formulative for the World Bank's own post-conflict reconstruction policies and state-building policies, according to their own acknowledgement. Uh, additionally, the IMF, uh, in its own publication, said that the reforms that it implemented in Palestine were, uh, were amongst the largest in the entire MENA region. Uh, which actually says a lot considering what happened in places like Tunisia and in Egypt and, and the revolutions that happened thereafter. So with such a huge wide margin and uh, such, uh, such great implications and such disastrous results, uh, how, do we, how, how do we comprehend what, what took place? Taking into consideration that the total amount of do donor aid that has come through Palestine amounts to at least $30 billion since 1993. Uh, and the post-conflict reconstruction policies that I mentioned that the occupied territories were so central in formulating, just in February 2016, the World Bank announced that it was trebling the amount of aid that was going to come to the MENA region to use all this post-conflict reconstruction aid and, and, and similar techniques that were devised at the Palestinian theater across the Middle East up to $20 billion. So it speaks to the fact that it's not just affected drastically Palestine, but it has affected other theaters globally and will continue, unless we are able to develop a much more critical, nuanced understanding of what this aid is, how it works, and the consequences of it, plus what can be done about it. Now, we didn't get peace, and we didn't get statehood. That's pretty self-evident. but. What we did get, and what I argue in the book, is we got Palestine Limited. As Salim talks, it, it, it mentions in the beginning, it's basically, I, I mean it in two senses. One, geographically, somehow, if you go outside to, uh, to, to, to the west or wherever, people will say, oh, 
not Palestine. Oh, you live in Palestine. That's next to Israel. Where, but the concept that there, there has been something that has been created over the course of 20 years that is called Palestine that does not correlate to the historical understanding of Palestine. It is a form of diminutive Palestine, much smaller, that does not correlate to even 67 territories. Uh, it, it is a kind of nomenclatural distinction where you have .ps at the end of the internet or, or 970 or non-member observer status in the UN. However, on the ground, there is no sovereignty, there is no real state, there is nothing, not, nothing that's, that's real about this Palestine. It's virtual Palestine. The second form of Palestine that this refers to is, of course, limited in the sense of it being a limited holding company, okay, a shareholders company, some form of uh, organizational for-profit entity. Okay. Now, I don't mean to be crude with this because I, I don't mean for Palestine LTD to be a capture all the all the issues about what Palestine is about. It's it's a helpful discursive tool that I use. It has relevance. It doesn't has relevance. It's up to you to decide. But what I mean by the second definition is that the end sum game of 20 years of peace building, of state building, of reform of donor A led to a situation that is not too much different from a limited shareholder company where you have different forms of local, international, and regional investors who reap forms of profit, extract forms of surplus. The surplus is not always financial, but can also include political and service and security oriented forms of extraction or services, okay? And, and, and this is what I mean by Palestinian, by Palestine limited. Now, of course, as I said, it's just a clever word, but it's not supposed to, to substitute for a more nuanced explanation. Additionally, it should be said that we're talking about, the book is trying to cover 20 years, talking about many actors like, with diversities within each set of actors and within each actor, over 20 years and great disparities in power between the two. So it's a very complicated task even to try and do such a thing. But I try it nonetheless. So, now when we talk about neoliberalism, there's basically three, three main sides to it that I want to emphasize. There's, there's the theoretical aspect of it. Everything that was done here under donor aid, under the World Bank, had some form of theory that tried to underlie it and uh, under, uh, undergird it. They argued it. It has a basis in some form of theory that is propounded by some set of actors. When we talk about neoliberalism in Palestine, people think neoliberalism is about Kentucky Fried Chicken in El Bire, or Pizza Hut, or about how many millions of NGOs we have in Palestine. Now, I don't want to deny that that, has, that, is a, that is a function, that is part of neoliberalism. But I tend to come from a, a development studies perspective. And for me, neoliberalism has value and meaning to preserve it, to go back to its origins. In the sense that neoliberalism is about a process that starts in the late, in the late early 70s, which is attempting to redefine the post-war balance between capital and labor. 
I don't have time to go through a whole history, complicated history of what happened, but basically, when you unleash markets and when markets go unhindered or ungoverned or unregulated, they need to collapse. They lead to crisis. They do not self-regulate. That's what happened in the 30s and 40s. After the war, World War II, there was a compromise made in Western Europe and in America balancing the interests of capital and labor. That balance has now been re-tipped in the favor of capitalism and capital, and this is what we mean by neoliberalism. The ideological push to push for capital being dominant over labor, and this means that the role of the state in economies must be reduced, okay? Markets must be left to do their magic. If you go to the theoretical roots of neoclassical economics, they believe economics and free markets can solve anything. In not just the problems of economic growth, but social and political problems too. It has a magical power to it, and, and this is this is so this goes into a set of theories that start talking about how do we create markets and how do we create growth and and it leads to a set of policies which were later known as the Washington Consensus. The Washington Consensus being 10 different policies, prescriptions which called for free trade, austerity programs, privatization, uh, and a whole other set of main policy instruments that were supposed to lead to growth and which could solve, it by unleashing the market, you could unleash and solve all these issues. Of course, when this is applied to a conflict setting, there was also the logic that it could be used to solve conflicts as well. As well. And there's a whole set of theories around that too, but, but, I, but I won't go into it. Right? Uh, but the fact of the matter is, uh, this was a, a dominant part of the thinking at the time when the Oslo process comes around in the late, in the in the early 1990s. You have to remember this is when America is ascendant, hegemonic power, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and there's an attempt by the United States to impose its hegemony and reorganize uh, the economics and geographical and political circles of the world under its. Suzerainty under its control. Now, when it comes to the policy aspect, when this set of theories were began to be translated into policies in on, on the ground, there were basically three main formal stages within which these policies were uh, were, were articulated. There was a peace building stage from 1993 until 2000. Uh, there was a reform stage until 2004, and then there was a state building uh, stage. These are the three formal ideas. And I want to show just quickly about where neoliberalism fit in with each one of these policies. Essentially, in the state building phase, state building was about, I'm sorry, excuse me, the peace building stage, the early stage, it was about establishing the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority was argued to be this instrument that was necessary for activating growth, for organizing society, for creating some kind of governance, etc. There was an entire appendix attached to the Oslo Accords which described the economic projects to take place under Oslo. And they actually mentioned these projects as, have, as akin to a kind of Marshall Plan, 
Marshall Plan and Development Studies is like the gold standard of uh, economic projects which rebuilt to Europe and, 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 and after World War II. So the mention of, of a Marshall Plan in the Oslo uh, Plan is actually not, not well recognized, but it was there. That and these, the, the major economic projects which were part of the Marshall Plan in the Middle East, what, uh, including a whole bunch of different neoliberal projects for creating free trade zones, creating a canal from the Red Sea to the Dead Sea, bringing in international investors, local investors, creating a local development bank. They had a whole appendix affiliated with, with these. These were supposed to bring in the international capital, local capital, merging with the Palestinians, and this was supposed to anchor the process, okay? Uh, and create a, a, a virtuous circle scenario, which the, the economists describe. If, if people were making money, and these big projects were, were flowing, there was going to be trickle-down economics happening. Trickle-down peace was basically going to happen. Uh, the second stage was, of course, the reform project. This is a reform stage, and the reforms are uh, exactly what I mentioned before insofar as the IMF, after the failure of the peace negotiations in Camp David in July 2000, uh, and after the outbreak of the Intifada, the failure of the political process was blamed on the, the lack of growth amongst the Palestinians, actually by the donor community. There was a famous UN report at the time saying the main problem was there was lack of growth, and the real problem with lack of growth was because the authority was corrupt. And it was engaged in, in too many activities that were interfering in the market, corruption, predatory, etc. So the need, therefore, was to engage in gross reforms, much larger than anyone had ever seen in the region, and this was supposed to create the basis for launching for, for the next stage of peace building, which, inshallah, next time it would work, basically. The third rationale after the reform was, of course, the state building project of, of Fayyadism. This is what uh, uh, also it mirrored the transition in economics itself. As neoliberalism, early versions of neoliberalism used to say, just take these 10 different policy instruments, free trade and, and float, float your, 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 uh, your currency and encourage privatization and austerity, don't subsidize, just take the 10 Washington consensus points and then you'll have growth. This proved even by economic standards to be faulty. So the economists themselves at the World Bank had to go back and restudy what it took. And that's when they discovered the institution. And there was a revolution in neoliberal thought around principles of new institutional economics which said, we actually have to have the right institute. If these policies are going to work, we have to have the right institutions. So this is where the Fayadis project of new institutional economics and creating the right institutions, state building, good governance, transparency, accountability, all these factors are needed to actually launch the, the launch this economic growth and, 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 and thereafter peace. And uh, so from 2007 on, we have the World Bank alone providing 47 projects. Uh, uh, this was more than half of the 91 projects it approved since arriving in the occupied territories in 94. In six and a half years, the bank's committed itself to more projects than it did in the previous 13 and a half, uh, totaling uh, almost a billion dollars as opposed to $600 million for the previous 13 years. 
So it gives you a sense for uh, how much they were invested in this project. So that was all the formal theory and the formal policy of what they said that they were doing. They were providing technical help, capacity, startup money, budget costs, all these things that were supposed to lead to this, this, this model to take off, inspired by neoliberal principles. From my research, and a big part of what I was trying to do in my research was also go through many of the important documents that came out, whether they were from WikiLeaks, or they were from the Palestine Papers, or actual archival work. In, in 2010, the World Bank actually opened up its archive and said you can, they, they had an open access policy to their archives, and no one had actually researched what, what these guys had been doing, or looked at their paperwork and, uh, to see, to see things. This was very important because there is both a formal transcript of what people say and what these organizations say and do, and then there's an informal. And what these documents gave me the ability to do was to look at the, the discrepancy and the contradiction between the formal and the informal. And what I discovered is there weren't just three major phases of, of peace building, reform, and state building. There was actually a much, uh, there were four stages. And in fact, a very important stage that's not mentioned was the planning stage. People, a good plan often cannot be seen. When the Oslo Accords were signed on 13 September 1993, two weeks later, the World Bank came out with a six-volume study. I don't know if you can put out a six-volume study in two weeks based upon an agreement that's super long. Uh, the point being, they knew a lot of things in advance about what was happening, and they planned around it. Okay? And, the document, and, and, and they, they, that first World Bank study articulates many of the plans of their vision of how this state would be. But I also was able to find other documents that showed degrees of premeditation and a contradictory political approach to what they said they were doing in terms of peace. This is what I mean. I found evidence of the United States government engaging in game theory to try and find ways to predict who would be the winner and loser of the Oslo process. So, from one document, they mapped, this is a document from May 1993. May 1993, so it's the summer when Oslo is being negotiated. At the, we know from the accounts of the negotiators themselves that they, the Norwegians were calling the Americans up daily from the embassy in Norway and updating about the, the latest developments in, in the negotiations. And when we say negotiations, we mean the, the forms of uh, 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 things that the Palestinian negotiators were actually giving up. Anyway, this document, at the same time when they're understanding what's happening in Washington, in, in, in Norway, basically the document says how can we predict who will win and who will lose from this interim period. They knew that it would be an interim period. It's not right away that they would withdraw. It, and it's not that anybody can win from an interim period. It's not like the Catholic Church is all of a sudden going to take over Palestine. Or, or that uh, somewhere, you, if you want to be an institutional and political winner, you have to have the vision 
for capturing the institutions, for having a social, political, economic, and integrated project. So they studied the existing actors and the existing institutions out there who thought they could win, who thought, who had a chance, who were players, shall we say. So, as you see, the, the, the fetish institutions in agriculture and healthcare and finance and industry and education, then they go through the left, different left, Islam, uh, Hamas, Israel, Jordan. The point being, this is a highly controversial uh, table, if everyone in this room should know, because public affiliation between many NGOs and social organizations in women's committees or healthcare or agriculture do not publicly affiliate themselves with political parties, which Israel and the international community considers terrorist organizations, and still does to this day. So the fact that th they mapped the different institutions and who was out there by itself said a lot. The second part is, this particular document goes through different autonomy scenarios. Essentially, the document argued that there were two main factors that would play a major role in who would win and who would lose from the interim period. The extent of the autonomy given, which would be either full autonomy or limited, and the speed of its implementation. So this gives us four different scenarios. In if the autonomy, for instance, the most democratic scenario would be rapid withdrawal speed and full autonomy, which leads, in this case, to institutional pluralism, decentralized bottom-up factional base, balance. Slowly implemented would lead to an institutional monopoly, centralized, top-down, fetish dominated. That's because if you slowly implement it, you give the chance for the central authority to centralize its power. However, the scenarios that de facto came to be played out were actually both limited. No one can argue that Palestinians enjoyed full sovereignty or extent of autonomy. And in the case of the West Bank, it was the speed of implementation was slowly implemented. And in the case of Gaza, it was rapidly implemented. That meaning the Israelis withdrew at one time in 1994 from Gaza, and in the West Bank, the results, according to their analysis, was that one would lead to intifada, and the other would lead to gridlock. And in later down, they actually say it could even lead to civil war. This is the basis of what happened in Gaza in 2007, later on. And Intifada is also what happened across the West Bank and Gaza, occupied territory. Because de facto, we have this hybrid scenario that happened. Basically, Israel and Jordan would be the institutional winners of the interim period. This is very important. That's just about the planning stages. Then when it goes to looking at the peace building stage, there are obviously many problems around the neo utopian neoliberal model that, the, that donors and the World Bank were pushing. Of course, the occupied territories was not a post-conflict setting. This meant the interim period became very important insofar as the interventions of the donor community were immediately seen and read by Palestinians as privileging 
certain political priorities and constellations of benefactors over other in the early it, during this stage. Hence, when donors gave such supremacy to the issue of Israeli security, when they ignored settlement expansion, when they accepted a, a secretly held agreement that negotiated in Oslo, when they accepted the privileging of Fatih, when they accepted the privileging of expatriate capitalists over the great majority of economic actors who were small and medium locally, and other forms of bias, activity, inactivity, this gave the Palestinians the feeling that what donors were doing was gerrymandering and biased, biasing the final uh, the negotiations to take place. It was, if Israel was changing facts on the ground, the donors were changing facts in the social, political, and economic realm also to conform to their vision of what a solution needed to be. And this included, by the way, for instance, trying to reduce the number of refugees that, 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 that would be negotiated upon. I thought there's evidence of that. Second, of course, major problematic of the theory, there was, and, and the Oslo process itself, there was no independent arbitration and no linking of the accords to international law. Obviously, this was the major point for Palestinians, the only strength that they had. If you read Uri Savir's papers about the negotiations, he tells of Allah, he says, look, if you want to go towards international arbitration, we can guarantee you a pile this high of paperwork that will go nowhere and just collect dust. It's just America who arbitrates, point, stop, point there. And the Palestinians accepted. So there was no arbitration. There was no independent mechanism to ensure that this was affiliated to international. Well known. This gave the character of the whole negotiations process a character of the Israelis negotiating with themselves. And in fact, you have Shimon Peretz when he's Paris Economic Protocol saying, we were negotiating with ourselves. What do we want? Do we want open borders, not open borders, etc.? Thirdly, of course, the entire model of Oslo, the Palestinians had no money. Awala, in his diaries, declares openly, we were two months away from bankruptcy. They had already cut 70% of their budgets, of a $200 million budget. This gave enormous power of the Israeli and the donor community over the Palestinians. Created a rentier structure of strategic rent provision from the Israelis and the donor communities over the Palestinians. It also meant the lack of money that the myth of economic building through neoliberal models and the 10-point program and the Washington Consensus was hollow. Five of the 10 key policy tools of the Washington Consensus had zero basis to them in, 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 because the Palestinians didn't have those policy instruments. Well, three more also were, were partially biased by, by the Israelis. That meaning only two sets of policies, austerity and even privatization was problematic. The Palestinians only had these instrument policy tools as two of the 10 policy instruments needed for neoliberalism. That's from the work of uh, Kanafani and Kobo. But the point here being that this exposed the mythology that free markets could, could do this, because there was no free market. The Palestinians had no, no sovereignty, they had no, none of the policy tools to be able to implement anything. In addition to that, 
the, the utopian models also entirely ignored the fact that the occupied territories were de-developed. De-development is a very particular kind of arrangement. It's not development in the Western sense or even underdevelopment as might be known by some that happens in the third world where you have uh, certain benefactors who are who, 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 who sell the things for the, 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 the metropole in the periphery and they can supply raw materials, etc. De-development is a condition where a power, in this case Israel, comes in and actually cuts up the potential for horizontal linkages. Israel actively prevents any form of synthesis or logical organization of the Palestinian economy, deliberately to cut it up. So it entirely ignored this, this aspect. Of course, Israel itself had its own political designs on the occupied territories, which emerged from the contradictions of the fact that in 1967, it came to occupy over a million non-Jews in the Jewish democratic state. If they gave them citizenship, it would erode the Jewish character of the state. If they did not give them citizenship, it would erode the democratic character of the state. So these polls continue to problematize, be problematic for Israel, and this was what led to the Oslo process being interpreted as Israel's attempt to find a surrogate power to do the job for Israel because it needed to solve this contradiction. But the co very important, this contradiction remains today too. Because there is a contradiction between covering what the, uh, providing services and providing Israeli security, a power that covers all Palestinians, and at the same time having a power that is too strong. If you give, if you give Palestinians authority over all Palestinians, but this can also become the base or the nucleus of a future national project. So these tensions always existed. Finally, of course, when we, we actually look at what happened in these plans, we understand and we begin to combine all, all this together. We understand that the, the investments that came through, anyway, there was, there, there was very little investment. Israel came and imposed its closure regime, but Quite important to emphasize here is that even the investment that did come in, because it's well known, capital is a coward. And in a place like the occupied territory, it will be double coward. Would you invest in the occupied territories? If you, were, if you had millions or billions? Only if you had very strong guarantees of making a lot of money. And that's exactly what happened. The point, what I, what I show in the book is that the rents that they created, the investments, the Marshall Plan projects, the sweet deals, the green fields of Palestine, the, 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 the investments that came to begin, many of the investments went into speculative or lazy or niches of the economy that ensured product, uh, profitability in situations of war or peace. This is very important because the peace building idea had it saying that the peace would reinforce itself. If you get the money going, it's going to create peace because they want stability, because they want more money, because etc. etc. That's the virtuous circle. In truth, the investments went into areas that were profitable in both war and peace. 
That's why today we have a situation in Gaza where the electricity generator made 7% profit the same year that it was bombed by the Israeli Air Force. Okay, ridiculous situations of profit which is not even based on producing electricity. So, it debunks the theory and it debunks the policies. Then when, when it gets to the, we get begin to see much more problematic aspects when we pull all these things together. The reform projects that we spoke about earlier, now, of course, they said that everyone, many people knew and spoke about the existence of Palestinian corruption. And, and, and uh, it, it, was, it was a billy club used by the international community calling for a good governance, uh, implementation of good governance. And we witnessed, slowly but surely, the World Bank and the IMF imposing wide series of reforms that included the creation of a prime minister position, the creation of acceptance in the basic law that we were a free market economy, the centralization of all accounts in a Ministry of Finance accounts audited by the IMF, a whole wide ranges of structural reforms which in practice were designed to, does everyone remember, they were designed to actually marginalize the executive, marginalize Arafat from the institution of the Palestinian Authority because he was seen as the problem. Now the issue here is we have to have a little historical memory because it was only Arafat who could have created the Palestinian Authority because creating authority under conditions of continued occupation and continued colonialism was considered extremely controversial by the Palestinians. He gave the process a sense of stability, a faith from the Palestinians that this could potentially be okay. Arafat was leading, even though there was a lot of questions from many aspects around, around the, the move to go towards Oslo, especially obviously because it was secretly negotiated. But when international reforms targeted Arafat and removed him from the institution which only he created and only he could have created, he was first politically killed by Ehud Barak and Bush, who said he was not a partner to peace. Then he was institutionally killed by the IMF and the World Bank, removed from this apparatus. And then the apparatus, then he was physically removed. How is it important? Perhaps not, but the point is, the real important point is Arafat accepted all the reforms to try because he wanted, which created a clear path for his succession thereafter. And the problem with all this, in addition to the fact that it raises serious questions about how these organizations acted, was that their fealty, their love of good governance, their faith in these economic principles, that this is how it's supposed to be, as though they were true diehards, of, of, of neoclassical economics, in truth, what ended up happening after the 2006 elections, the donor community completely reverses position, is not interested in good governance anymore. Many of the, the very same reforms it had created and forced upon Arafat, they reversed, including giving direct money to the executive. So till today, the money technically goes through a temporary economic instrument, Pegas and Tim or whatever, basically which 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 was a major 
points of contention under Arafat. Uh, so, as we see here, now finally comes the, 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 the latest stage. Now, now, actually, no, the really important point to mention here, of course, is that you know, everyone speaks of how the authority was expected to be some form of subcontracted military power to, 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 uh, to Israel. This is sort of well known, and we have famous quotations from Yitzhak Rabin uh, about uh, how uh, they expected the Palestinian Authority to be act brutally and, and without the Israeli Supreme Court and without Beit Salem. Uh, so it was known in advance by at least the Israelis that the Oslo arrangement would be illiberal politically and illiberal economically. But there's a very important quotation that comes from U.S. Ambassador Martin Indyk in 2003 when the Intifada has happened. And he's basically interviewed by 60 Minutes, which was one of the most important uh, news shows in the U.S. And Martin Indyk basically says, he says, the Israelis came to us back in 1994, and said, Arafat's job is to clean up Gaza. It's going to be a difficult job. He needs walking around money. Because the assumption was he would use it to get control of all these terrorists who were being op operating in these areas for decades. So that's the US ambassador basically saying Arafat needed walk around money. Well, what is walk around money? It's where you have a fistful of, or a pocket full of millions, a suitcase money. You go around and you put it in people's hands and you say, you want to work with me? And let's get others to work with us. And that's what they did. Off budget, it's off budget accounting. It's deliberate. They designed it. So the corruption that the donors went after was their structural design. He was doing what they wanted. The depositing of the money of fuel revenues, which was a monopoly, in a Tel Aviv bank account was done by Israel. And only Arafat and Muhammad Rashid had access to that money. Because they were supposed to have walk around money. They understood it. When he didn't sign Camp David, then they, they, they grabbed him back, basically. And they took away the apparatus that only he could have created. And then it became their instrument of control. They had now the information, the data, the nomenclature, the, 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 the entire breakdown of how to analyze this society and how to break it down. Finally, of course, this comes into state building, state building, fayadism, the creation of the, the, the institutions. We have to remember that state building came immediately after the enormous economic shocks of the Intifada. If you take the World Bank director, he describes the economic shock that happened to the occupied territories as being more than double what happened in the Great Recession. It's, it doesn't happen economically. It was a deliberate economic crisis created by Israel, not just creating closure, but creating internal closure. The 600 checkpoints around the West Bank to make sure that every single tomato that crosses from one town to another, they have the power to say yes or no to. A massive apparatus of opening and shutting and closing and, and, and social control. 
which exposes how Palestine is not just a, a place of military laboratorial thinking like Gaza is, but it's also for social and political and economic engineering. So basically, they, they worked substantially to improve the institutions, and then a major part of what they did, then they turned on the faucet of the money and the capital to come into here by working heavily with the banks, by bringing their own money from the donors. And uh, this was very similar to the shock doctrine I, I described by Naomi Klein. And it comes after the situation of great, great shock. And ultimately, a very important part of this we can't forget is the fact that this money and this, this fayadism and this financialization is all going to the creation and support and sponsorship of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. Gaza, which is already, has too many contradictions and can't, can't absorb all this, has already split off. Because, because the international community won't accept the results of the elections, they attempt to have a coup against it, it doesn't work, Hamas stops it, they set up their own institutions, and now aid goes to deepening institutionally, politically, financially, politically, economically, two sets of institutions with two sets of finances, two sets of legitimacy, two sets of tactics, two sets of strategies, and through this, a de facto divide and rule emerges. A divide and rule which works to destroy perhaps the most important thing the Palestinians created post-1948, which was the attempt to create a national, single unified national movement that could tend to the needs of this community, a community in diaspora that was ethnically cleansed and tries to get their rights back. What's that? Honda and Ford car. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay. We're at 45 minutes. Okay. So I think I think it. So we're basically very close to uh, to finishing here. But these are the topics that I address in this book. It's an attempt to try and bring power and politics and realpolitik into what's happening. The, the idea that the, the idea that the conflict is an Israeli-Palestinian or, or Arab-Israeli conflict with donors somehow outside that have nothing to do with it, for me, was always something so difficult to accept or understand because it, it was belied by the reality of, on the ground of what I saw and the fact that these countries had very clear vested political, geopolitical, economic interests in, in, in Israel and, and, and this could not be denied. So, I, in that sense, I saw Western donors, and it was important to write this book, to rewrite Western donors as constitutive actors to the conflict. Constitutive actors to the conflict. Which means that any strategy that is to be built to lead to Palestinian liberation, internationally on a Palestinian level, also must take this into account as a, as a key ingredient. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to open the field for discussion, but I want to do two things first. One is allow 
my colleague uh, Daoud to uh, make a few comments and introduce that by asking you two questions. Uh, well, I realize while you're talking how young you are, because when you keep referring to the Intifada, you talk about the second Intifada. Uh, but I know you were born after the first Intifada, but it, it tells us. <laughs> excitement that you generated this discussion. I was looking at the audience. I, I could only find two people asleep after this hot day. So that's, that really speaks something about your opinion. My questions are, I want to ask you something about agency, because you seem to describe a system, post-Austral system, which seems overdetermined. And yet, in your discussion, you talk about groups, civil society organizations, NGOs, and factional splits within the authority that allowed a certain degree of maneuverability. And one feature of this uh, fluidity which allowed intervention is the discussion of Fayyad and Fayyadism. We remember, for example, the schemes that developed not only the anti-corruption campaign, but the uh, area C development projects, especially in the war, which Salam Fayyad intervened. And this seems to suggest that there were areas of intervention that uh, sort of contradicts with the notion of all determination by the World Bank, the Israelis, and the world community that set up also. So maybe you could say something about agency within this context. Agency within the regime, Fayyad, and agency within civil society. Could people do something about this, or was it determined that this is the result that we would get, given the parameters that also were described? And second, uh, the system we described seems not necessarily peculiar to uh, to the occupied territory. How how is Jordan, for example, which is not constrained by the Israeli rule? different from the economy that we have here. I'm sure it's different, but could you explain that? And could you say something, I want to say something provocative to you at the end. How is this analysis, in terms of originality, different from what Sarah Roy or Stad Suhi Samur or Rajat Khaldi talked about in terms of the new liberal economy? I mean, what is original? Maybe it's not a fair question, but how is your work different from the contributions that they make? And uh, lastly, I didn't understand what the minute principle in terms of Osman was. The minute principle. Millette. 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 How does it fit? You didn't explain what that means. So, Dawood, uh, would you like to say something? I'm not sure. i 
I'm sorry to, to speak in Arabic for our uh, English-speaking uh, friends, foreigners, friends. يعني مش كثير سهل علي بصراحة الفصل الافتتاحي اللي قريته واللي بعت لي اياه توفيق والختامي الاخير اللي قريت جزء منه اعطاني انطباع انه الكتاب كتاب مهم فعلا وأكد أكدت هاي الأهمية تعليقات نعومي كلاين اللي حكى عنها مصارع رول كمان على الكتاب بستطيع يعني أقول إنه بشكل أساسي أنا متفق معه بالشغلات اللي قريتها رغم إنه يعني مش اختصاصي اقتصادي يعني بس يعني الملفت للانتباه انه الجانب السياسي مجرى الاحداث بيلتقي في النهايه مع التحليل الاقتصادي اللي اعتمده من زاويه الصيغه اللي عم بيمشيها المشروع الاسرائيلي للحل وهي صيغه تقاسم وظيفي بين اسرائيل والاردن وظيفي وليس ارضي وليس تقاسم الارض انما تقاسم المهمات فرهان الاسرائيلي رهان نتنياهو واليمين الاسرائيلي واضح جدا هو على استمرار الاحتلال الاسرائيلي واعطاء الصلاحيات المدنيه لمتابعه المواطنين او السكان في نهايه المطاف للاردن يعني بتكون هون المرحله الخاصه بالحكم الذاتي الفلسطيني هي مرحلة انتقالية أو يعني ممكن تركب على كل حال بشكل من أشكال الولاية الكوندومينيوم يعني الولاية المشتركة هذا الشيء اللي شفته بالفصل الختامي وأعتقد أنه مهم وفعلا الأمور من الجانب الإسرائيلي تندفع بهذا الاتجاه موضوع كيفية مجابهة ذلك بالنسبة للشعب الفلسطيني موضوع آخر طبعا ليس مجال هنا أنا أكتفي بهذا القدر وأقدر يعني الجهد اللي وضعه زميل توفيق بهذه الدراسة المهمة
I need to get your book sold. Please don't put it near Francis Fokoyana. Okay. Yeah, you know that I was not but there was Francis Fokoyana. That's my mistake, if that was a mistake. I mean, how do you turn Fokoyana? You have to buy two books. Okay, we have one more uh, intervention and then we'll have a second round to allow Kalfi to respond. But these are the marginal comments, my comments. Because otherwise... My name is Shihab. I'm a leader in development uh, I just have a small question because we touched base on many different points from Arafat. I, I'm sorry to say what I understood. It was so much ridiculing about Arafat. At some, that's what I grasped, what I understood from a bit is that Arafat was kind of controlled as a chess by the Israelis, the Palestinian economy was kind of... There was a lot of conspiracy in it, since also until the death of Arafat and later on Fayyad came, etc. But I didn't hear any suggestions on how this Palestine Limited as a company, in terms of development, I'm saying, how would you suggest a better paradigm if not neoliberalism? Since you are like contradicting Fayyad. Shall we take? Can you over there? Hi, my Oh, I just have one small question. Um, during your research, did you um, look into any research of, for example, um, the tools that um, the Sulta or the people who has uh, negotiated in Oslo, um, any game theory or planning phase that they have went, underwent before going into the negotiations, just how the World Bank and the international institutions involved and Israel obviously have done? You were talking about the Palestinian people were involved negotiations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I mean, uh, Albert Said called uh, called the Palestinian Versailles. It was a great surrender, and uh, in many respects, uh, I, I think the historical record shows that. And it goes to answer some of Salim's questions as well. It's it, it's not over. It's not over when this is signed, but there are very clear things that they agree to in the Oslo Accords that were a retreat from their previous position. They had to create Oslo so it could go around the Madrid process and the official negotiators from the local ones because because basically there was, there had been a position that you can't create uh, you have to have settlement stop and if you create uh, self-governance under continued occupation it's also a contradiction because it allows Israel to do what it wants on the ground and you don't, you can't stop it and they accepted that 
And those are structural aspects. Structural aspects which the authority agreed to. And the reason I say that because you asked about agency and there's only so much you can do. Of course, you, you always maintain your agencies, but if you accept certain structural and institutional realities, you, it's much very difficult. You create path dependencies. You, 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 you willfully allow certain things to take place. And, and that's, what, that's what happened. It's not that the Palestinians uh, it, it was over uh, after after, the, and and this also relates to the gentleman's question about Arafat, and and here as well on the issue of nationalism. Neoliberalism was a part of the strategic thinking of the Palestinians themselves. In so far, the Palestinians had deep experience in state building in, in the Gulf, in in Jordan. They were some of the Arab world's most uh, competent businessmen and intermediaries and skilled engineers, whatever, it's well known. Uh, uh, but the promise of neoliberalism gave them the idea that we could, we can do something with this. And, and, and through neoliberalism, we can lead to national liberation. I have a famous quotation from Mustafa Ismail where he, he uses the fact that they were able to get international leverage to get the, to have Tony Blair release the frequencies of the Wataniya deal as a form of liberation of airwaves, and then tomorrow it will be water and the next day land. This idea that you can use neoliberalism and the market and all these things to do. But it, in, practice, in practice, it describes a utopian reality where you can do things. In reality, you have a much different scenario. When it comes down to practice, policies translated into practice on the ground, neoliberalism, the utopian basis of it disappears and power politics emerges. And, and that's, that's what happened. Uh, uh, to answer the first question about Fayyad, it's a very important question. Of course, everyone knows Fayyad came straight out of the IMF, and he was very ideologically believed that uh, you know we need we need good institutions. And actually, there's something to that argument which is seductive. You don't need to tell me that uh, we're under occupation. What does it mean that we, we still need to have uh, functioning accounting and we have to have good institutions, etc.? This is actually part of the logic of new institutional economics, which is basically says that if you just have the right institutions, it'll work. And actually, that's not true. It's not true. You can't just take the right institutions, perfect institutions, and transplant them with a blueprint mentality anywhere, and it works. There are historical, political, economic factors that need to be taken into consideration. And, and there's what is known as the political settlement, which is the underlying balance of power between different social and political forces which are competing with each other. This is what is what, what, where developmental outcomes. But the fact of the matter is, we were still under occupation of colonialism. It hadn't ended, so it wasn't, we weren't free. So Fayyad is brought in to do the house cleaning. Why? Because Fatih, Fatih was using rents and using corruption, supposedly. This, 
to try to create a margin of maneuver and policy space for itself because the conditionality of donors in Israel was too restrictive. And so, would you, they, they didn't build a factory here because Israel would come and close the factory. Because you, if it wanted to move the produce, it could be stopped. So instead, they went in the other direction. Instead of trying to create productive economic sectors, they went into trade and commercialism and lazy speculative things, and then tried to monopolize those. And through their networks, control this, and have surplus rent and money come back to them, which gives them a margin of policy space. And this is Fatih's strategy. It's also Hamas's strategy, by the way, down in Gaza. Good governance goes after that. It says, no, 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 you have to have very clean accounting, everybody has to be, you have to have tender processes and all this sort of stuff. Because they don't want organized political and economic activity going on together. Donors. So, in a way, my book is actually, it, 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 it tells the Palestinian side of the story, that they were trying to do something, like it or not, it was the conditions of Oslo. Israel wouldn't have it another way. They were negotiating with themselves, the Israelis. They imposed Paris. Insofar as the Palestinians accepted Oslo, you can say it was a great crisis of leadership, but it's not the leadership alone which bared, bore the results of what, why the funding got cut off in 1990 and 91. Far larger sections of Palestinians it was not just Arafat who was, who said, and it wasn't even clear that he didn't say, I support the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. The Gulf had their reasons for want, wanting to, to shut this phenomenon of the PLO. The Kuwaitis wanted to kick out the Palestinians. They were fed up with them. They used the excuse of the Gulf War. The Palestinians were cornered on all sides. They had no money. And the authority, or the PLO, had personified the struggle inside themselves. Which is, a, which is a problem, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not being apologetic, but, but they also weren't the only people to have this, to, to, to share that position. I'm not, the, the responsibility for Oslo is one thing, and it needs to be taken more, uh, it, it, it's complicated. I'm just trying to say that it wasn't Arafat alone who brought this upon the Palestinians. Uh, Fayyad is brought in to do this because he ideologically agrees with this new institutional economic approach. Uh, and the fear was, this is quite, I think is also quite important in the book, is the fact that the international community wanted to use the Fayyadist current to create an alternative set, uh, uh, alternative political and institutional reality in Palestine that wasn't, so there was inherently a tension between Fetih's domination of the authority and Fayyadist desire to create a technocratic authority. Of course, the donors wanted the technocratic authority. It costs less. There's none of this politics and it solves the problem with Israel. You don't have, khalas. Fetih is still attached to the, all the old national liberationist discourse, etc. And, 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 and they're messy as far as the donors are concerned. So basically, the authority allowed, brought Fayyad in. By the way, who brought Fayyad in? It was Arafat. And Arafat was the one who brought Fayyad in, who did 
the majority, and Fayyad himself gives acknowledgement for Arafat for making the reforms. It's not Fayyad, interestingly enough. And then, and then once he is institutionally removed from the scene, the authority is, is taking over, basically, uh, and uh, as I described it, basically, and uh, Fayyad starts his project. And then at a certain point, there's a tension that comes up between Fatih and the technocratics trend. And basically, around 2010, 2011, when the Arab uprisings happen, Fatih uses it to get rid of this Fayyadist tendency because they fear that it is an attempt to create an alternative leadership in, in the end. Uh, to answer the questions about uh, you know the title and national, I hope that I answered some of the questions about nationalism. I, I can't really speak to your understandings. Of, uh, really, it'll take time to, 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 to get the, under, the ideas of Palestine LTD out there, and, and they're, they're they're wider. Uh, what, what I really did want to, to provide is also part of the narrative of understanding the Palestinians. The Palestinians had well-developed plans for what they could do here, but they weren't allowed to be implemented, basically. Uh, so, uh, and then finally the point about Jordan, which I think is probably one of the most important, because this, this speaks to that there was basically a form of predetermination that America wanted, well, the scenarios that they picked it, according to their own analysis, said that it would lead to Israel and Jordan being the institutional winners. And functionally, this is what we see even in the latest uh, crisis in Jerusalem happening. You see how this, they want the political points to be accrued by, by Jordan not by the Palestinians. And, but what's ironic is Jordanian influence in the West Bank was always something incredibly controversial. It was rejected. People were killed for it. Today we are in a situation where elements of the authority willfully bring on to their project Jordanian capital. And in fact, it's another element that the book shows that the only people that made advances in the Oslo Center until today has been Jordanian capital. Now, you will say, okay, many of those Jordanian capitalists are actually Palestinians. But the truth of the matter, when you look at that money, you look at who regulates it, who controls it. And it's regulated from Amman, not from Ramallah. Okay? So, Jordanian capital made advances. In the post-Abu Mazen era, there are fears about what will happen with Palestinian investments and money. If you look at the Palestinian newspaper Al-Hadath, which is not so far from the Palestinian Investment Fund, which is basically the investment fund which controls Palestinian investments in public-private partnerships. About four months ago, they had a cover story saying, are we in front of a Jordanian-Palestinian confederacy? Basically, and eight pages of a nine-page spread were pro-Jordan commentary about, yes, because Jordan is actually a more stable partner than the mess of the next generation of Fatah. Basically. And we prefer Jordan to play that role than watching Dahlan and whoever fight it out. 
you know? And, and so the irony of history that this turn took through these models. Now, it's very important not to speak determinatively and teleologically as though what we know today what can be seen linearly directly back to 1992. What I tried to show, what I had to reduce in my talk was the nuance, was the how it happened, the, the shui shui. It, it's complicated and delicate things, but also the point is there are important points to be made. You know, and I want to get them out as much as possible. So I don't want to minimize the, the, the tensions and the agency and the different aspects of the thing that, that, that are, are implicit in there. But uh, you'll have to buy the book to get those. <laughs> that you first to Okay. We'll take three more interventions and then pass on the microphone to Yezan to thank the Sakakini Center for so just to be really quick, you define neoliberalism as uh, tilting the balance in favor of capital and against labor. And in much of this, the discussion, there's a lot of detail on the side of capital, on the side of investors. Um, I'd like to know a little bit more about where labor fits into the story at each of the stages that you lay out. Thanks, Sophie. Uh, uh, I read the book and uh, I learned a lot from it and the analysis uh, spoke a lot to the logic and it made a lot of sense. Uh, but there's like two points. One is uh, the what, what the donor organization is doing in Palestine is similar to what the donor organization is doing elsewhere, in Africa and stuff like that. Uh, they're benefiting from this uh, structure. This is a global problem. It's not uniquely to Palestine. What's unique to Palestine is that we're in the state building mode. But this is like more general, and uh, you can draw a lot of similarities. Uh, anyone here who worked in Africa or another country, and their countries were colonized, they're still up their tools, and they're doing the same thing all over again. There's exploiting. Uh, the other point, uh, I, it's also just a note. Uh, the book is good, uh, but also, uh, 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 sorry to say that, uh, that is, uh, 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 also, I don't think that the Palestinians, even the negotiators, were not smart, like, uh, they did like, uh, like, even us, the Palestinians, this is a long conflict. Like, I was born under occupation, and I remember the Jericho when the PA came, and I was standing in the street, and I saw for the first time a Palestinian with a, with a dress. Uh, this, this is a small, small win. Of course, there are people that might got richer out of it, people that got their bank filled or something. But uh, as a general, uh, as a general, even capitalism, like when it started, started from extremism, started like for profit, 
Now in here, you can say that it's going to be for the sake of profit. If you look at the number of poverty or stuff like that, I think I think there's an evolution line with capitalism, how it's changing, uh, that that should be pointed and across like different countries and so on and so forth. And also, I don't think we as Palestinians had so many options at some point, but it does not mean that we did not get the best that we could. And as you mentioned, I like how you concluded today, because you didn't mention that in Jerusalem, though, like, uh, that this is not only about Israel and Palestinians. This is everyone has a role to play in here. And also, Jerusalem is the center of this. In the end, it's uh, Jerusalem, and uh, and we've seen the latest things. Thank you. Thank you. مرحبا انا اسمي مريم اول شيء رح احكي بشربي للمسرح اول شيء بدي احكي اول شيء شكرا على الاسلوب الشيق الشغله الثانيه بدي احكيها ممكن احكي للنساء بعبر دائما عن المشاعر ممكن احكي انه شيء كثير ديبرسنج انه شيء محزن نسمع فكيف نتعامل مع هذا الموضوع كيف يعني انا بتواصل مع الايجنسي يعني كيف كيف يعني ناخذ الشيء لمحل بناء لانه احنا بتخيل في مرحله يعني بحاجه لشيء لشيء اكبر ل يعني بوستونتيت اي وقت احنا بفكر بشغل يعني بحياتنا في احساس اللامبالاه هذا الشيء انشغل عليه كثير ونحن بفكر انه الكتاب شوي يعني مش شوي كثير يعني بالنسبه لي بس نكتب نكتب كثير شغلات بفصلنا في مشكله الهويه في مشكله وين احنا هذا هو يعني مش عارفه كيف الواحد ممكن تبدا فيه بس انا بتخيل عم بعبر عن حالي معينه، الشغله الثانيه انا بفكر قصه النيوليبراليه هي موضوع منتشر بكل العالم، يعني كمان بالدول الحديثه العالم الاول ويقال كمان بالعالم الثالث، يعني كانت رح توصلنا رح توصلنا خلينا نحكي اه فالسؤال يعني انه شو 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 الشيء اللي طرق يعني انا انا بالاعتراف نيوزيلندا موضوع النيو النيو هذا موضوع اللي دائما بتحكي عنه الدوله يعني هو الحديث اللي بين الحلقات فليش ليش يعني شيء مختلف يعني يعني كثير الشيء اللي عملته كثير عبقري برايي بس يعني كيف كيف يعني بتوافق مع كل العالم السياسات الموجوده الحاليه كل العالم اللي بسموه النتورك سايتي يعني هو شيء مفهوم ضمن انه يصير هيك عالم انه سياسه الاقتصاد الماركت هو اللي سوري 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 the talk. I have not read the book yet because I'm very excited to. Uh, building on the theme of agency and where do we go from here, uh, if you wanted to give advice particularly to Palestinians working in the nonprofit sector, what is the advice you would give? Mm -hmm. 
الأخير وليس الآخر. Where is the social aspect? Where is the the, the notion of the people? What, what were the people chosen? You spoke about politics, you spoke about economy, and you spoke a lot about how politic politicians and economists they collaborate or they together to to institutionalize uh, uh, not to the society, but but you ignored the agency of the people, as if the people, everything had been imposed to them, as they had no choice in what's going on, as everything just happened like this and have to accept it. And considering the era that you were talking about, especially between after the first and the father, where, where the social notion was still very high, where does that fit with all those plans? Okay, this is it. I will. Uh, I just want to uh, say that one persistent question which Maryam raised, and the gentleman in the back, and two people from here is: Do you have an alternative model of development? Going back to the issue of overdeterminism, is this a fate that was imposed on it, was sealed, or is there an alternative vision that could have happened, or still? could emerge from these contradictions. So if you just say a word about this, and then we'll give it to Yazan. Okay. Well, okay, well, there were other questions, but I guess if that's the million dollar, it's a, it's a million dollar question <laughs> that you ask. Uh, it's a, yes, it's definitely a billion. A million is definitely this. Anyway, uh, look, I don't, To be very frank, I think I think once once certain conditions were accepted, including the creation of a self-governance authority in under conditions of continued occupation, a lot of it is details. Yeah, it, it, the Israelis would work to filter together with the donors to prevent that the Palestinians could do nothing with this seriously, and now. You see what the donors are doing, uh, the Americans. Are, they want to take away any margin of national identification inside what the authority does. So it's pure technocrat, te te service oriented. That's why there are people on the water Sea right now who don't have their, their pensions and their paychecks who are prisoners. And the fact that now the authority in its own logic of power struggles with Hamas and with whoever, internalizes these kinds of fights and says, okay, releases, and says, okay, we won't pay for Ahl Sharda or Ahl Asra, whatever, or Nazar will get rid of the Gaza constituency of, of, of you know, stopping to pay benefits for, for Gazans. What happened is, it's shocking what happened. The point is, like, uh, it's scary that these things were internalized by, by the Palestinians, but it's also part of the logic of, of the plan. Uh, but structurally, I don't think that that's how the logic of things would lead to. What this book, though, says is basically says the problem is not Israel-Palestine. The problem is Israel-Palestine, Western capitalism. And Western capitalism, you're right, neoliberalism happens everywhere. Right, sure. Okay, it's a, it, 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 it's a technology, it's a, it's a lie, it's for reorganizing 
class formation and who the benefiters are and, and institutional arrangements. And that's what they're doing here to conform to the set of political interests of the powers who are leading it. The powers who are leading it is the United States, Israel, and the donor, and Western Europe. Now, the book talks a little bit about there. This is there's a lot of diversity in that too. Okay, like I discuss the difference between what I call the development wing in the donors and a politics wing, politics first wing, development first wing. The Europeans say, okay, what's wrong with having Palestinian capitalism thrive? No big deal. The Israelis are lying, it's not about security. The World Bank knows, they did all the studies showing that you can have ways to get crops and things out of Gaza with all the security things answered. But Israel doesn't want politically. They don't want it. So, the, the, it's, it's been answered. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, so, uh, in Palestine, it conforms to the logic of, of what, what happens to be the overlap between U.S. interests is protecting this state, Israel, here as, as, a, as a loyal customer, as a loyal state in the region that is not reproducible with other Arab states. If, other good Arab states, there were plenty. Hassan and Barak, but, but tomorrow they go. Israel will never go like this because Israel has an organic connection to the West, economically, politically, to an imperial power, to give it the protection, the political, the economic, the military, the diplomatic protection, to facilitate it. That's why Israel today is also trying to build connections with emerging powers like China and, and, and India. Because if China takes over in 20 years, it needs to be their man in the Middle East too. So they were the British and French men in the 50s and 60s. They are the American men from the 60s, onwards, 70s, mid 60s, and who knows who they will be, unless we defeat them. Now this is where the question is: What happens? What the understanding of the equation changes the balance? Understanding of where its contradictions are. There's limits to how much I would argue we can do here, Palestinians, within this current context. There are limitations to it. But that doesn't that means there are other fronts that we need to work on. The main contradiction in my understanding is basically between the interests of Western tax taxpayers and their support for an apartheid state. That's the main contradiction. If you can break that contradiction, you break Western support for Israel and then then it's much more problematic for them to defend what they're doing. Of course, it, it would be very helpful if we had a different Arab region as well. To, 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 because you need to have balance of forces. But I'm not going to get into revolutionary theory. What I am saying is, we have, it's not always the case that the occupied territories was the center of national liberation for the Palestinians. And it may not be today anymore, in the future. This, we may have ended this historical period. Before it was in diaspora, now it has been for the last 20 years in the occupied territory. There will be and always will be a role for a Palestinian presence organized here, doing its politics, doing its things. But, but, but how do we fight then? Do we try and fight the Israelis face to face or is the struggle on a much larger level. And that's, I would argue, if we work on the bigger issues, 
and build, working on the contradictions of the bigger issues. We can do a lot because the world is actually in a state of crisis right now. Neoliberalism didn't just screw Palestine, it screwed the whole world. <laughs> and look at what's happening in America. It's, it's phenomenal, an in, incredible crisis of capitalism where the president is the outsider to the institution and they're, they're locked to horns and fighting and they can't even run their empire seriously. I mean, they have the, they're holding on to the empire, but, but they have no direct, they don't know how to go forward. This creates a lot of questions in America, in, in Western Europe. We, it's, we've seen it happening all over. This is the natural constituency. We need to rebuild America and rebuild Europe and all the others, because they are the key stakeholders who have the power and support Israel, and rebuild their domestic politics with Palestine as a crucial part of it. That's what I would argue. And that's what this, this the logic of here we need to work to ensure that what happens with Palestine and, and, and the Palestinian Authority is that, that we uh, we uh, how we negate the plans against us, both from the Israelis and from the Jews. We maintain our political organization, we maintain our presence on the land, and we work to socialize. The problem with the neoliberal logic is it's very individual. And all the decisions are done without our, we have, there's no democracy. Instead, we need to socialize and expand the decision making and, and profit making so that we have more concerned parties who are, who are vested in it and have a say in what's happening. That's what, what needs to be done locally, if possible. Okay. Sure.